Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with John Guy. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Um, sure. I I kind of had a problem with this question because I didn't really, couldn't, nothing really came to mind about how interesting I am. Um, but I guess, uh, and you're you're also in Australia, so um, uh, your listeners might not really know the geography. But I can say that Wyoming. Uh, I live in Wyoming now, and this is the furthest east I've ever traveled, uh, which is about 1,200 miles from California, where I'm from. Um, I, my favorite genre of music is 1990s punk rock. And I uh, grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods uh, in Oakland, California, that there is. Well, that's uh, that's plenty to start with. That's really great. Um, now, my knowledge of U.S. geography isn't crash hot, um, but I think Wyoming is cowboy country, isn't it? Is that correct? Or historically, it was cowboy country? Yeah, it's the cowboy state. Yeah. <laughs> So we're here to discuss your book today and also critical thinking, which is sort of pretty much the core of your book, as I understand it. So for the benefit of our audience, can you tell us what critical thinking is and why it is so important? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's kind of a hard thing to pin down because uh, critical thinking is it's so many things and it involves so many different topics and fields of study that it's it's not really easy but i think uh the i came across a lot in trying to define it a lot of different people have defined it different ways and i thought uh edward glazer's definition was probably my favorite and um, to quote him he said that uh, it's it's the persistent effort to examine any belief or supposed form of knowledge in the light of evidence that supports or refutes it so um along those lines it's um it encompasses understanding how logic works. Um, it understands, uh, or, and that includes, we'll go into biases and fallacies, right? Um, it includes um, knowledge about the foibles of memory, training on information literacy and source credibility. So that in involves like analyzing, interpreting, uh, evaluating evidence and sources. Um, and it's also an understanding of how our brains construct reality and we interpret that construction based on prior beliefs and experiences, which themselves are also construction, our brains constructions of reality, which is also based on prior experiences and beliefs. So it's kind of like a homunculus of nested beliefs and experiences that contribute to our brains construction of reality and so on and so forth. And critical Critical thinking um, is a set of learned skills that kind of helps us understand, um, how do I say it, um, uh, release the, the homunculus or, or, or get to the bottom of it, you know? Yeah, they're important skills. Um, why, why are they important? I think they're essential skills for avoiding scams, making health decisions, um, interpreting reality, avoiding loss, maximizing happiness, 
So if I think if one understands the basic tenets of, of, of reason, it could hardly be argued that it's better to live a life less rationally. <laughs> that is really great then. So I, if I was to summarize that then, basically critical thinking is a form of structured thinking which applies analytical thinking methods to the information that we receive and the way we put it together and the evidence that is laid before us and it's it's a way of making the best sense of the world depending on on the basis of the information and evidence before us and it's called critical thinking because it is analytical it looks for flaws it looks for holes in, in information and evidence and it tests what we perceive and and hear it tests that information it tests that evidence against known factors so critical thinking is, is one of the ways in which we establish truths about our world with the the nature of our reality and the laws of of the universe in, in which we live and it's a way of putting together everything as accurately and coherent as possible so that we you know so, so we make sense of our world and of course most of the time we do this quite automatically we do it in a you know in a very learned set because having grown up as as children and being learned learn how to to interpret different types of evidence and information say we've learned how to read we've learned how to use numbers we've learned what various signs and symbols mean stop signs for example or traffic lights all of those are information and evidence that we use to make sense of our world but it's critical thinking that puts them all together in a coherent way and it's critical thinking that tells us how to interpret those particularly in circumstances where some evidence might be giving us different um, different messages um, and helps us to make best sense of of the evidence and the information before us and that's helpful in situations where evidence and information seem to conflict or we have uh, a lack of evidence or or not enough information to put a full picture together so we draw on things like inference to plug the gaps or we use deduction to plug the gaps um, or we might sort of maintain a an agnostic position about something and say well i don't have enough information to make a decision about this or to arrive at an opinion about this and all of that is is critical thinking it's a form of learned behavior that we do subconsciously every every day on a low-key level but there are ways to do it at a higher level sort of say uh a more analytical level, an academic level even, or a scientific level, if you're in that kind of field, that is much more complex than the everyday background critical thing that we do. Is that is that a fair, uh, that ended up being a lot longer than a, of a summary than I expected, but <laughs> do you think that's a, a fair recap then, shall we say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's important to stress in what you said is that uh, critical thinking skills, they are definitely learned skills. They're not um, we, we do have a, a sense of, of critical thinking. You know, if, if, if somebody tells you that, uh, you know, they're a millionaire and, and they're wearing rags, you know, that we, ha we have some sort of critical thinking that goes 
Well, the evidence just doesn't line up, right? He's, he's wearing rags, he kind of smells, and he's standing outside of a store asking people for money. It's really unlikely that he has a million dollars somewhere, right? So um, some of us do have those skills on some basic level, but it's, it, when, it, when it comes to really becoming a good critical thinker, um, like I, the, the, you know, those topics I mentioned earlier about like um, understanding logic and how memory works and information credit, uh, um, information literacy and, and source credibility, those are those are fields of study that you actually need to know something about mm -hmm. in order to be able to become a good critical thinker. And on what I would add to that is that it's not just about knowing all that stuff. It's also about having some skill in applying what you know. Because if you just know a bunch of things, but you don't have any skill in applying them, you can't really apply those to yourself or how you view the world. So critical thinking is also kind of an inward um, way of approaching the world so that we understand our, our biases and, um, you know, fallacies in arguments so that we can understand you know what to trust and how could our own personal experiences or biases be be controlling how we're interpreting the information we get about the world yeah i think that's that's very well put it's not just the capacity to think it's the ability think to think in a certain way it's the mental toolbox available the intellectual toolbox that we use to apply different types of thinking different strategies of uh, making sense of information and evidence and as you say some of these have to be have to be learned they're not they're not inherent they're things that we have to develop and actively practice to get good at so you've written a book which you call an owner's manual for the human brain uh, firstly what is the name of your book uh think straight an owner's manual for the mind okay what do you mean by this and why do you think people might need an owner's manual for their own mind don't we all know how to use our, our minds already? <laughs> we we don't actually so i like um uh, James Alcock's explanation about this, how it's kind of like when, when you look about uh, when you look at it in comparison to speaking, right? We all speak. We, we, we do it all the time. And if um, but we also understand that in order to speak well, we have to have some learned skills in order to do so. If we want to speak or write well, we have to study things like grammar and composition and syntax and so on. And that, that's well accepted by society. We all understand that if you don't study those things, you're not gonna be very good at it. And, and thinking is the same thing. Um, the, the analogy of thinking is, is great because we all think, we, we do it all the time. And in order to think well, you need some skills like the ones we were just discussing a, a moment ago. And it, one of those skills is understanding that many of us don't have those skills. We have, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, is that we are ignorant of our own ignorance, right? We just don't know what we don't know, but we're kind of buoyed by this feeling uh, of certainty, which convinces us that we do really know things that we absolutely don't. <laughs> oh, I guess, so I guess that didn't answer your question at all. So the, 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 <laughs> the title of the book is um is think straight and owner's manual for the mind so uh what what I, what I tried to do with the title was the the think straight part it was inspired by um the failed scared straight programs that used to take uh 
juvenile uh, criminal offenders and take them through the prison systems and scare them into you know not wanting to go to jail and those those programs were 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 um, counter effective they they actually um, you know showed that they made uh, those children who attended those programs worse off than than statistically than you know children who didn't attend those programs uh, were so the reason I chose think straight is because um, I use you know the term think straight as kind of uh, uh, um, uh, the same the same way I use critical thinking. Uh, I use them interchangeably throughout the book. And uh, critical thinking skills and thinking straight they actually do work. We know we know that like P for C or or um, philosophy for, philosophy for children. We uh, we know that that has a huge impact on children's. Uh, ability to socialize, to analyze information, um, and all sorts of things. We know that if we, um, children who are taught critical thinking skills early in life are less likely to be taken in by scams or frauds or believe baseless conspiracy theories or, or what have you. So we know that critical thinking has a serious positive impact on people's lives, especially when you teach it to them uh, from a young age. And uh, an owner's manual for the mind is kind of how I saw this book develop. That's, that actually wasn't the, that wasn't the subtitle of it originally, but I changed it to that because it, it, it kind of is that, you know, it, it walks through many of the different fields of study from psychology and neuroscience uh, uh, about what we know about the brain and, and how it works and, and how it doesn't work and what, you know, what, what do we need to know in order to own this brain and be able to properly navigate the world. That's really well put, thank you. Um, actually, while we're on the subject of the brain and the mind, and this is purely out of uh, personal interest, both scientifically and philosophically, for centuries, probably thousands of years really, there's been considerable discussion and debate about what the brain is as opposed to the mind and whether the mind is a, a product of the brain or, or some kind of, you know, almost like a sort of a simulation in, in our heads um, or whether the, the mind is inherently a part of the brain. So there's, all, there's various, different, various different models like the epiphenomenalist model, for example. What's your take on that? Obviously, say different philosophical and religious positions have you know been established on this. So the, the average religious person would say that the uh, the mind is is the soul, which is that you know the the core of of the person. But from a materialist perspective, the the mind really is is just a a product of the brain, an organ. You know, the mind is like a well, it's difficult to find, to define, but it is a kind of internal experience that we have, which is somehow produced by the brain. It's not a separate thing from us, and it's it's partly how we identify ourselves, but it's uh, yeah, difficult to say that uh, that is us as distinct from our body. Yeah, the Cartesian theater, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think I think that the 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 mind and the brain are are in a way they are two separate things right because they have different they have different performances they have different actions but if you think if if you want to think that the mind has some sort of properties that the rest of the universe doesn't have i mean that's really 
that that's a level of hubris that I can't um, subscribe to, right? Because we have to think that I, I live my world by a naturalistic philosophy. And that basically says that what exists in nature um, is all there is, right? What we can what we can measure, what we can quantify, what we can divine, that's all there is. And I don't think humans are any exception to that. So the mind, uh, the way I look at it is kind of, um, it's, it's an emergent property of what we have uh, going on within our brains. So we have um, you know, uh, neurons and dendrites and axons and, uh, the, you know, throughout this, this process, we have um, uh, electrochemical signals that move around. And one of the things that emerges when you have all these properties working together is the mind, right? And it's like this, this ability to be self-aware and, uh, and have abstract thoughts and, and things like that. So, so the idea about whether or not the mind and the brain are two separate things is in philosophy, this is kind of separated into two camps. Um, one is monism, which basically uh, that's where that's the camp I would fall into. And monism basically says that the, the mind is what the brain does. It's, mm, it's they're not two separate like things. Right. And and dualism is the idea that the mind and body are two separate things, whether that separate thing is some sort of like, you know, cosmically given consciousness or whether it's spiritual or we are brains in a vat or we got it from aliens or whatever you want to believe, you know? And, um, uh, one of the best analogies that I know of, uh, came from a book called the skeptics guide to the universe. And, uh, it's a, it's a fantastic book. And they said they, they had an analogy in that book, um, about consciousness. Right. And, um, the analogy goes something like this. What I said about having, having dendrites and axon terminals and, and neurons and, and uh, electrochemical signals. When, when those things come together, we get an emergent property called consciousness. And so the analogy they use is with capitalism. And uh, so capitalism is, it, it's not a physical thing, right? You can't, you can't go in there and, and grab ca- capitalism and, and quantify it, right? But it still exists, right? And how does it exist? Well, when you have something like a currency, and then you have a commodity, and then you have consumers, when those things get together and they interact, what emerges from that is what we call capitalism. So I, I really love that analogy. And, and it kind of, it, it kind of shows that you don't need to have, you don't need to be able to go with, with um, uh, a, a pair of microscopic tweezers and grab consciousness as a physical thing in order to say that it exists. And what they said in, in uh, the skeptics guide, if, if I remember correctly, is that we can no more say that, you know, capitalism has some sort of spiritual component than as we can consciousness. Yeah, I really like that analogy because it's actually a very good example of evidence and information coming together to give us a complete picture of what's actually happening. We might not be able to put our finger on, you know, capitalism as a tangible thing, but then of course we never claimed that it was. What we are saying is it is a a force of some kind that is affecting a system, that system being our economy, and capitalism is the force that makes it work in the way it does. And there are various 
variables which come together to make that happen. And although I'm a Christian myself, I don't subscribe to a supernaturalist view of the mind-body connections. I'm definitely not a, a Cartesian. I definitely subscribe to the materialist view. I don't believe in, in an immortal soul or anything like that. So the materialist view, as, as you've demonstrated in your analogy, makes best sense to me. Uh, you know, the mind is a, um, is a, uh, a product of something that the the brain does or the mind is what the brain does i think that's an excellent way of putting it and it also helps to explain better than any other explanation that i've found what's actually going on in our heads even if we can't exactly define how it's happening in in you know in simple terms so i, I think that's a, a very useful analogy to explain what's actually happening there yeah i really enjoy that one so what prompted you to write this book in the first place? It, it, was it your, your uh, professional background or, 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 or what was it? Or was it just talking to people and thinking, hey, you know, maybe there's a need for this kind of thing? Or was it maybe your own education? You thought, hey, looking back, there were gaps in my education that, that should have been filled. And I, and I think this book would be helpful to address that, that, those issues. What was it that that prompted you to write this book? Because it was it just out of nowhere, or or <laughs> what? How did you how did you sit down one day and decide I'm going to write a book about critical thinking? Because that's not something <laughs> that everyone does. Yeah, well, I didn't exactly do that, and uh, what, <clears throat> what I actually did uh, was fail at my intended goal. Uh, what I, I had been into to um, philosophy and science and psychology and and critical thinking. Uh, for several years, and I wanted to, um, I, I came across a DVD, uh, are, are you familiar with The Great Courses? Um, okay, so so I, 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 um, I came across one called Your Deceptive Mind, and uh, it was basically, uh, you know, lecture by lecture, how critical thinking works, what it's about, what are its subtopics and, and, and subfields of study, and I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. It's um, it's by uh, Professor Stephen Novella, and he does a fantastic job of of breaking it down so that ordinary people can understand kind of the complexities involved in what that field of study is. And uh, I was I was in prison at the time when I wrote uh, when I read that uh, sorry watched that DVD course, and I started thinking we need something like this in prison so that Joe Schmo prisoner can, you know, take a pamphlet, you know, boil critical thinking down to its most basic level and disseminate that and, and, and in group settings, teach it to other prisoners, because I really think it can transform lives. I think there's, that's not just a personal opinion. There's, there's a lot of evidence behind that. And uh, I wanted to develop a, a course like that. And in the process of uh, developing it, uh, it just kind of snowballed. <laughs> I started off thinking that I could probably knock this thing out in, in, in about six months with the goal in mind being, you know, a small uh, curriculum for uh, inmate led groups. And then that kind of turned into uh, this, this giant book that, uh, you know, goes way into the weeds on many of the topics that uh, are covered in critical thinking. 
Well, that is a fantastic backstory for any book, and uh, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense for yours, especially. That helps to explain so many things, and and, and I certainly agree with your with your conclusions there. Um, helping people to think more effectively, to think more critically, more constructively, will help people to make better decisions about their lives and to tackle some of the challenges and the, and the problems that they face. Of course, it's not as simple as saying, well, if you think better, you'll have a better life and things will work out better for you. No, that's not what <laughs> right. you're saying. But what you are saying is when equipped with better tools that maybe a lot of people might not have had the benefit of receiving in their childhood due to you know challenging circumstances, when equipped with those tools, they've got a better chance than they would otherwise have had. And also, gives them the the skills and the reflective capability to look back on what's happened in their past how they can change their present to move towards a better future so i i think that is absolutely fantastic that is that is really wonderful um, yeah thank you i think uh, uh, along the lines of what you were saying too is um uh Schick and vaughn had in, in their book how to think about weird things they they have just a a, a perfect de description of what you just said and it, they basically said that the, the quality of our life depends on the quality of our decisions and the quality of our decisions depends on the quality of our thinking and that that couldn't be more true and, and if if we improve the the quality of our thinking that it, it logically follows that our decisions are going to be of higher quality and if our decisions are of higher quality then our overall life is going to be of higher quality yeah yeah no, I think that's really excellent. So I note that your book was published by Prometheus Books, which is noted for its promotion of humanism and atheism and, and skepticism. You've described yourself as having a materialist perspective. So I, I'm, I imagine you are an atheist and, and probably a skeptic yourself. Is that fair to say? That's yeah, that's very fair to say. I think my 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 intellectual journey kind of started with atheism. Mm -hmm. I, I I was I was um, I grew up as a Christian and I wasn't really in, involved in the church, but I believed in God and um, I believed in heaven and hell and uh, a lot of what the scripture taught and I believed in Jesus and I, I had doubts my whole life and I had I had kind of a um, a pivotal moment when I was about sixteen uh, where. I, I kind of put God to the test and he, and he, and he failed the test. And, you know, it, it's, it, you're kind of raised, well, at least I was that, you know, thoughts about doubting God's existence are, are, are sins. And, and so is, you know, using God's name in vain. So I, it was really difficult for me to start letting those thoughts in. And I, I think the first book I read on atheism was an atheist manifesto by Michael Onfray. And I was really impressed by it, and I I thought, wow, this this is this is a different way of looking at it, and there's there's a moral framework behind it, there's an intellectual framework behind it, and and I really liked it. And from there, I started getting into um, like the four horsemen of the atheist atheist apocalypse, you know, the um, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Dan Dennett, and uh, I actually uh, got into biblical scholarship for a while and started reading books by. Uh, Richard Carrier and um, Raphael Lattister and you know the, the the big hitters in that field and I, I found that it was it was not just intellectually satisfying but it was also um, like I'm not I'm not spiritual but there's kind of still a spiritual component to me 
And I would say that that gave me some, some spiritual relief that like, I don't have to feel like my life is being controlled by a purveying God anymore. You know, I can, I can base my uh, worldview on, on different moralistic values that don't have anything to do with religion. That's really interesting. And it's, it's um, almost the, the reverse really of the experience that a lot of people have. There's a, well, it, it seems to be more so a, an American stereotype that someone who's an unbeliever goes into prison, finds God, and comes out a committed Christian. That's that's a very big stereotype, particularly uh, as I understand in the American evangelical community, exactly how accurate it is and and how solid some of those conversions are. Well, that's that's an entirely d different matter. Yeah, I could I could give anecdotal evidence to that effect. Where what what I've seen is that does happen a lot. Um, okay, okay. But as far as I, I I've never researched uh, you know whether or not that is the case, so I don't know what the mm. science would say behind it. But anecdotally, I can say that there's a lot of people who who find God in prison or find God in jail. And, I mean, it does make sense when people are at uh, you know at rock bottom, they're going to search for hope they're going to search for an alternative explanation to you know the way the world works they're going to look for meaning maybe maybe meaning on purpose is something that they've never actually had in their lives and this is one of the reasons they've ended up in prison and of course that comes down to the whole issue of decisions and and thinking as you as you pointed out before and so they find religion and that becomes the thing that helps them progress now it could actually be any number of different things. It could be skepticism. It could have been atheism. It could have been agnosticism, even, or um, you know, even just a, a different type of of philosophy. Um, but for a lot of people, it's it's religion, and I think for cultural reasons that makes sense in in the context of the U.S., where religion is such a a dominant part of public life and particular politics in a way that it definitely isn't here in, in Australia. Um, sure. But I understand, yes, in, in the US, that makes a lot of sense. So actually, that brings me to the issue of philosophy, because in your book, you discuss the importance of philosophy. And again, for the benefit of the audience, what is philosophy? And why should the average person care about it? Um, well, philosophy is, uh, I really like the roots of the word philosophy. Um, it, it comes from uh, a couple of Greek words that means lover of wisdom. And for, for a long time, for, for millennia, that's what philosophy was. It was any, anybody who was pursuing uh, uh, knowledge or, or wisdom or, you know, what, it, what is reality, what are ultimate truths about things, uh, was considered a philosopher. In fact, scientists used to be called philosophers or natural philosophers. Um, and that's kind of changed now. So um, philosophy now is is more concerned with like fundamental truths. Like what is the ultimate meaning of things? How do we get to the, the bottom of it? And philosophy is very self-critical in that it's, it's, it's constantly um, examining its own methods of inquiry in order to see if those methods are well poised to get to the truth or the or, or the meaning of something so philosophy is concerned with uh, ultimate questions about life whether it's uh like some of my favorite things uh, uh subfields in in philosophy are like ethics and and metaphysics and and logic and probably my favorite is epistemology 
And if, you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with those terms, so metaphysics is basically about what exists, you know, what, 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 what is real in, in the universe, what does exist and what doesn't. Uh, logic is, is about, you know, how arguments are structured and how uh, language is, is interpreted and, and what, what are the rules of, of getting to an accurate conclusion by using uh, arguments. And um, um, ethics is about moral values and, and moral philosophy is a, is, a, is a fantastic field of study if, if you're interested in it. Um, and epistemology is about uh, what we know. It's, it's a branch of, of philosophy that studies what we know and how we know it. And those are those are kind of the fields of philosophy that I've taken a particular interest to, and I found them uh, really inspiring. I've, I've learned so much from philosophy, and that's I guess to answer your question, your the second part of your question is what why does what why why is philosophy important to the everyday person? Well, I mean you you can learn so much about um, about yourself, you can learn so much about the world. And whether we know it or not, philosophy affects our, our lives every day, whether it's uh, ethics involved in uh, regulating drugs or um, whether it's uh, logic involved in, you know, pursuing an, an, an argument with a, a partner or a friend, or whether it's about uh, epistemological, whether it's about what we know and how, how do we know those things. I mean, those things those things impact public policy. They impact our personal relationships, and they're they're vastly important uh, to understand. And and it's it's satisfying in itself to 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 learn those things. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. Uh, certainly, epistemology and metaphysics and uh, and ethics are three key areas that I particularly have a, a strong interest in as well. Um, they're very they're actually very practical okay people can argue maybe metaphysics isn't so practical um but it, it does have practical implications about the way you live your life and, and the decisions you make so there is at least a connection there and the others are, are of course quite practical in an everyday sense i think again i i can say about philosophy what i earlier said about critical thinking that it is something we actually do and participate in very often in our daily lives without knowing it because we're simply using the tools of philosophy or the the mechanics of of philosophy we just don't call it philosophy because you know, we, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> just part of every every day stuff that we do but whenever we are dealing with those issues discussing with a friend whether or not euthanasia is a is a valid moral choice um for example we are doing philosophy and that is uh that is one of the reasons, as you say, why people should be interested in it because, it, because it already is a part of their lives and learning more about it and how to understand it and how to do it more effectively can only be beneficial for themselves and for the wider society as well. Yeah, I completely agree. So further in your book, you also praise the merits of skepticism what is skepticism and how does it differ from simply being reluctant to believe or accept what people tell you? Yeah, skepticism and critical thinking are also words that I use throughout the book interchangeably. Uh, but I think skepticism, that uh, a word that also has its roots in Greek, uh, which, which means, you know, thoughtful or inquiring, 
um, I, I view or I examine. Um, so it's, it's basically, it, it, from its Greek roots, it's, it's about uh, introspection and you know, the, the, the desire to make inquiry. So it's an approach to the world that is truth sensitive. Um, skepticism is a way of looking at the world that cares about what's true and what's false. And it's some of the ways that, that skeptics pursue that is through uh, understanding uh, doubt and the differences between denialism and cynicism. Throughout history, scientific skepticism, it, it used to be really concerned with like ghost hunting and, and UFOs and, and, you know, crop circles and Bigfoot and that kind of stuff. And, and uh, over the years, scientific skepticism is, has evolved quite a bit. And now it incorporates things like, um, like you know, the, 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 the new groundbreaking findings in psychology and, and neuroscience and uh, information literacy is really big. And, and especially in the past couple of years, that one's been re really stressed that we need more information literacy in the world. The understandings of memory and, and logic are all, have all been incorporated into uh, what it means to study and and practice scientific skepticism, um, and I think what, what was the second part of your question? How does it how does it differ from cynicism and and denialism? Yeah, I was getting to those that I'm I'm looking at it firstly. The average person might say, for example, oh, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I I don't believe anything that the mainstream media tells me, uh, or you know, uh, oh I. I don't believe something just because that I, I saw it on Facebook. That's reasonable. That's reasonable skepticism and reasonable doubt. Uh, but then you go, okay, well, what about this news story from Reuters or from Associated Press or whatever? No, no, that's the mainstream media. I don't believe them either. I don't believe anything they say. I'm a skeptic. That's not really being a skeptic, though, is it? That is, um, no. that is an uncritical dismissal of information because you don't like the source, which is a, a form of log logical fallacy. So true skepticism, then, if I can build on what you said earlier, true skepticism is based on a desire for rational, coherent inquiry to arrive at, at the truth of a matter or the facts of the matter. And true skepticism isn't simply dismissing things or re simply constantly refusing to believe things. It's reasonable doubt. It's not not being willing to accept something without sufficient evidence and information is that, is that a fair way to, to put it yeah a absolutely like start st 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 uh, the way our brains work is it it tends to process information um as as true much faster than it processes information as false so kind of our default way of thinking is just to accept information as true unless that information you know, raises some sort of red flag, then it activates, you know, system two in our brains and, and system two goes in to analyze and see whether or not it's true or, or, or false. And so, so it's, it, it's much easier um, to accept something as true than it is to question everything. And that's for good evolutionary reasons. It, it, the, the, the cognitive load that it would require to constantly doubt everything and question everything would just be overwhelming. And there's no, there's, there's no known species that could function like that because we, we'd be doubting you know, whether or not we take the next step if we're gonna fall through a hole or whether or not we raise our hand, it's gonna get eaten by a bird or something. You know? we, we can't doubt and question every single thing, but skepticism is about having reasonable doubt, having having some critical thinking skills in order to apply doubt 
to not just the things that we see and experience and learn about in the world, but the way we interpret the things that we see and experience in the world. And, and that's, one of the, that's one of the main points uh, about it is that we can deceive ourselves just as easily, if not more easily, than the world can deceive us. I think uh, the famous quote from Richard Feynman is, it's the first principle is to not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So, so that, yeah, and that goes right along the lines of, of uh, the differences between uh, cynicism and, and denialism. So, so like knee-jerk cynicism is just about being, uh, it, it's more just having a negative outlook on things uh, along the lines of what you were talking about is, is just re reactionary. It's, it's, you know, having your ideologies or your biases control what you believe and just drawing lines in the sand and nope, that came from Reuters. That's got to be false because the mainstream media, uh, Reuters is part of the mainstream media and I don't trust the mainstream media. And that's cynicism. That's not, um, that, that, that's not skepticism. And then denialism is, is, is kind of similar, but the, the differences between cynicism and denialism are that denialism is like the willful rejection of information, regardless of the evidence that is there to support it. So if there's, you know, I, I really don't like the term climate skeptics because I actually don't even like the term skeptics being used outside of scientific skepticism because it it, it gives it gives some sort of uh, credit to people who call themselves vaccine skeptics or 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 climate skeptics or something when that that they're not being skeptical about that. You know, there's there's overwhelming evidence that vaccines are safe and effective. There's overwhelming evidence that the climate is being uh, warmed by human activity. And to call somebody a climate skeptic kind of gives the impression that they are intellectually weighing the, the arguments and, and uh, coming to a conclusion based on how they interpret that information. And that's, that's, not, that's not what skepticism is about at all. Yeah, I totally agree. When we use that term outside its context, it's it's um, it's appropriate context. We end up giving more credibility to ideas and positions which absolutely do not deserve it whatsoever. So, like you say, people who willfully resist evidence—they're not skeptics. They are denialists. They are willfully rejecting evidence and information typically for ideological reasons, not for scientific reasons, not for epistemological reasons. It's because those, those pieces of evidence, that type of information does not fit into their worldview. That's the main reason they're rejecting it. So that's why they are, they are denialists. They're, they're not questioning something, they're denying something that is actually real. And you know that the subset of uh, of denialism is contrarianism, where you you just take the opposite view to everything virtually just for the sake of of doing so, and that's really more of a um, a uh, a sophistic um, uh, position where you you're mainly just doing it for the sake of arguing and for the sake of wordplay, and and you don't actually have a a coherent ideological basis or, or a epistemological basis for holding this. You just determined to disagree because you think it's cooler to disagree with the mainstream or, or with science or, or whatever. That's uh, it also largely comes down to sophistry and just trying to explain things away or avoiding the burden of proof. 
And none of that has anything to do with skepticism or reasonable inquiry or reasonable doubt. And it's, it needs to be kept very separate from that term because it's, it's just uh, antithetical to everything that skepticism actually stands for. And again, I, I, can, I can say that because I, I, I respect skepticism even as a, a Christian myself. Obviously, I'm skeptical towards other things. I'm skeptical of, of things that don't fit into my worldview. And I have to constantly assess that skepticism and say, well, am I doubting it? Is it genuine skepticism? Am I doubting something reasonably? Or am I simply disagreeing because I already have an established worldview? And this information or this, this evidence doesn't fit into that worldview and I'm rejecting it on that basis. And I think that's a, a level of self-examination that we all need to have regardless of, of our worldview, whether religious, non-religious, agnostic or whatever. So your book also touches on the subject of conspiracy theories. Uh, and in that context, for example, you, you quote David Icke, who's one of the more unhinged uh, conspiracy theorists <laughs> who's uh, well known around the world. What do you think are the main reasons people find conspiracy theories convincing or at least claim to do so? Uh, probably one of the main reasons is because it gives people it gives people comfort in times of uncertainty. Uh, when, when, when things happen that that make us feel unsafe or uncertain or uh, we're, we're lacking in some sort of um, epistemological um, area of our lives, a, a conspiracy a conspiracy theory, what they tend to do is they tend to take something that's complex and complicated and offer a really simple explanation for it. And it, psychologically, if it, we would rather have a simple explanation that may sound kind of bizarre than having no explanation at all. It's kind of like that feeling of waiting for something bad to happen. Like when we're waiting for something bad to happen, we, we know it's going to be bad and we know we're not going to like it, but we want it sooner than later, sooner, sooner than later, just to get rid of the feeling of anticipation and conspiracy theories satisfy a, a similar psychological need in that we, we want some sort of closure. We want some sort of resolution. And along those same lines, if, if you have a conspiratorial worldview and you are, um, if you have a conspiratorial worldview and you have to, uh, you have some sort of explanation for something that other people don't have or don't believe and they have uncertainty, you can fill a lot of sociocultural needs by explaining that to other people. So you get like, the, 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 the satisfaction of like teaching somebody else or in your view, helping them uh, uh, with, with something that they're struggling with or, or whatever. And then you get kind of acceptance and, and uh, peer support. And those are all psycho, uh, psychological and, and sociological needs that, that are satisfied by uh, believing in and perpetuating conspiracy theories. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's an excellent way to put it. The, the desperate need to find security and, and comfort in a simple idea when faced with a situation or, or a, a world of overwhelming or what seems to be overwhelming complexity with so many difficult problems and, and issues, it's as much easier to say, well, all of this can be explained by X 
whatever X is. Now, people like David Icke saying, oh, but I'm not providing a simplistic explanation. Look, my explanation is very complex. There's lizard people involved. And there's something <laughs> about blood and, and royal bloodlines and adrenochrome is in there somewhere. And, and of course, kids are being molested or, or whatever. Somehow, there's always kids being molested. I don't know why. It just seems to be <laughs> a standard feature. You know, if you're not a proper conspiracy theorist unless kids are being molested somewhere for some reason. And I think it's really for the emotional pull really because it's one of the things that people they can't think of anything more atrocious i just think that speaks to the uh, the lack of imagination of the average conspiracy theorist but the idea it is it is actually simplistic because no matter how complex the window dressing of ike's idea or, or explanation the bottom line is it is a simple one all the little details that's all they are they're just details and and window dressing to give the central idea a veneer of complexity. The central idea is that there are sinister forces which are working against you, which are making your life harder, and this gives you someone to blame other than yourself or circumstances which may or may not have been of, of your own making. And that's it. It's just a case of, you know, the need to find someone else to blame for whatever else is going on, your on in your life and the need to find a source of comfort or a person who will tell you that everything will be all right somehow if you stick with them. And that yeah. really is very simplistic, hopelessly simplistic. It's not how the world works. Yeah, very much so. And you find a lot of, a lot of inherently contradictory um, narratives within conspiracy theories. Uh, in, in, in there, there's actually a philosophical study of conspiracies and in philosophy, there's, there's kind of two camps and one of them uh, are particularists and the other one are um, generalists. So generalists believe that we have grounds in general to dismiss all conspiracy theories out of hand. And the other camp, the particularist says that we uh, do not have grounds because some conspiracies do end up being true. So we need to look at them on a particular basis. But one of the things that you find uh, throughout the conspiracy theory narrative is like David Icke is, is one of the prime examples of the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, contradictory pusher of conspiracy theories, because literally in like the same paragraph in, in his books, he'll say, you can't trust the CIA and the FBI because they're reptilians and they have royal blood and, and uh, uh, they're, you know, they're scamming the masses and blah, blah, blah. And here's documents from the CIA, CIA and FBI to prove it. Well, what do you mean here's, we're supposed to trust the documents from the people who are, you're telling us are tricking us? I mean, what, you, can't, you can't have it both ways, you know? And, and, and then most of what David Icke cites is like media sources and cherry-picked governmental documents and all this stuff. But these are the exact things that he's telling us we can't trust is the media and the government. So why is he using information from the media and government to bolster his claims? And obviously it's, you know, massively cherry-picked and misinterpreted and, uh, you know, all, all those things go, in, go into it. But if you don't have, if you have a tendency to believe or, or see the world through conspiratorial lenses, uh, it, it, you can be taken in by that narrative. And David, David Icke is kind of the extreme in, in that he takes, you know, all these, all these little conspiracies like, you know, JFK or 9-11 or all these, all these little ones, they kind of just are explained by this massive conspiracy of reptilian shapeshifters that control all the world's events and, you know, are, are lizard people that have taken over our politics so that they can, you know, 
we can mine gold for them or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a really great quote from H.L. Mencken, which touches on this really nicely. Mencken said, the central belief of every moron is that he is the victim of a mysterious conspiracy against his common rights and true deserts. He ascribes all his failure to get on in the world, all of his congenital incapacity and damn foolishness to the machinations of werewolves assembled in Wall Street <laughs> or some other such den of infamy. That is just spectacular. That's, been, that's fantastic. It's, 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 it's possible to get better than that. That is just a beautiful way to to, to sum it up. Um, I like my uh, one of my favorite quotes on the subject is from Daniel Dennett, and it's it's much shorter, and I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but he he basically said that the idea that there's lizard people running the planet it cannot be dismissed except for on the gr grounds that it's a gratuitous fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, Honestly, as as well, if we've got lizard people running the planet, then I'd like to know where I can lodge a complaint because they are doing a really bad job of it. A terrible job. <laughs> yeah, they're doing a terrible job. At yeah, it. I, I want to speak to the lizard people's manager because uh, this is this is just not good enough. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I pointed out is that the people who believe in these grand conspiracies they tend to think that the 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 that the people or beings that are that are orchestrating them are omnipotent. <laughs> omniscient they know everything that's going to happen and they're super powerful um but then they make all these common mistakes that that you know unveils the conspiracy and it wouldn't be very hard that if they were that omnipotent and omniscient to infiltrate conspiracy theory circles and feed them bs conspiracy theories so that they chase their tails propagating this nonsense when they're really not paying attention to anything at all i mean that they, they would be the easiest ones to be manipulated <laughs> yeah it is very weird that the uh, the lizard people can maintain bases on uh, mars and and the moon and deep underground <laughs> and and control the economic systems of the entire planet but still can't manage to take down a youtube video exposing <laughs> everything that they're doing um yeah, they can't do it <laughs> In your book's bibliography, I notice uh, a lot of familiar names, for example, Asimov, Dawkins, Dennett, Dunning, uh, Feynman, Offit, Orestes, Pinker, and Sagan. If you had to name four people whose work has influenced you the most, who would they be and why? I think that's probably a Man, it's, I almost want to say it's an easy answer, but not really, because there's so many. Uh, I think Guy P. Harrison's writing and uh, uh, Paul Offit's were, uh, the way that they communicate science and, and uh, critical thinking and just different topics, that the way they write was is so clear, and I really wish that I could write like them more, because they just do such a great job at it. Um, I'm, I'm a, Carl Sagan was instrumental in, uh, t you know, teaching me how to teach science and, and take complicated subjects and break them down so that it's a, it's a lot easier to digest and understand. And probably a fourth one would be probably Professor Stephen Novella. Uh, he, 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 his breadth of knowledge is, is, is extremely wide and he can cover so many topics, uh, especially off the top of his head, 
that and 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 he also has a level of uh, intellectual humility where if he's not an expert on the matter, he will tell you this is partially speculation. This is what I know, and here's the parts that I don't know about. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I I have found Offit, Novella, and Gorski in particular very useful for their ability to communicate complex scientific information in a way that's understandable for the everyday person. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't have any kind of professional background in those fields. My speciality is, uh, well, my specialities are uh, history and philosophy and, and theology. So for me to be able to access information that I can find easily digestible and then means I, I don't have to repackage it yet again for my audience. I can just present it straight away. I can provide a link to an article, a little excerpt so people know what it's about. And I know that people understand that very well. Those three, three guys in particular are really, really good at explaining science and medicine in layman's language. And, and I just think that is a, a really, a really great gift. Um, another person who's very good at it is Dr. Anna Zakerson, who is actually I think the first person I interviewed for this podcast. Uh, she is a European scientist. And she's very passionate about science and she's excellent to talk to and uh, tremendously engaging, terrific personality, tremendous uh, breadth of, of knowledge, but also very capable of distilling it into a, an easily comprehensible format. And that's, that's something I, I really respect. So what, what are the three most important things that you want people to learn from your book? That's a good question, and that's a hard one to answer, given given the depth of the book I wrote. <laughs> but um, I would say uh, one would be understanding that your brain can trick you. You you can be wrong. It, it's it's naive to think that everything that we believe is true, and a substantial part of the things we believe probably aren't. So that that your brain can can trick you into believing things that are false is probably um, right up there. Um, a second one would be understanding uh, source credibility. I, I think, especially in this day and age, understanding how to tell the difference between a reliable source and an unreliable source is, is super important, especially in matters of, of public health and, 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 and personal health as well. I mean, that would fall into public health too, but, um, and, and probably, uh, the last one would be understanding argument. Uh, understand what an argument is, uh, what an argument is not. Understanding how to identify a fallacious argument. Understanding how to compose your own argument that is based on the principles of logic and is persuasive and compelling and, and grounded in the truth. Yeah. Excellent choices, I think, because they cut to the heart of what your book is trying to achieve and the tools that you are hoping to provide to people so that they can improve their capacity for critical thinking. I, I think that those are great choices. They certainly stand out in your book as key elements that you, you've wanted to get across. And I think you've done that extremely well. Well, thank you. 
so I've been informed that your book is available from most online sellers, but only as a pre-order at the moment because it has sold out twice. When was it originally published? Uh, yeah, it did. It sold out twice. Uh, it was originally published. Uh, the first release release was August 23rd. It sold out uh, within the first two weeks and it had to be re-released. Um, so it was re-released September 23rd. And then it sold out again and is now uh, being re-released -re October 31st. So it's available online anywhere you buy books uh, for pre-order. If you pre-order it, you get um, you will you should get it on October 31st. That's kind of how the pre-order process works. And uh, yeah, I encourage the pre-orders. The pre-orders kind of give the the vendors an idea about how many copies they should order and if if they if the pre-order sales are high then they um then they'll order more and we won't have we won't have a shortage again people can buy their buy their copies when they want them yeah now i'm aware that prometheus is quite a small publisher but even so their output is pretty good for for their size so for you to book to sell out twice in such a short space of time is very impressive i don't think even um Richard Carrier has, has achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty happy to hear it. Uh, I, I've been doing a lot to try to get the word out and, and promote it on social media and and doing podcast interviews. And, you know, word, word of mouth is huge, especially with a new author. This is my first book, um, it, you know, word of mouth, telling people uh, and, and just letting people know that this is available and uh, it, it is, is really been helping and people sharing it on social media and and, uh, and and helping you know re uh, retweet posts and and share posts on Facebook. That's been that's been crucial to uh, the success of this book so far. So if people want to follow you and your work, where can they find you online? So that I can put the links in the podcast episode description. I I regret to inform you that my website for this book is still not up. I've been I've been working tirelessly to try to get it done and it is still not done. Um, but uh, I, everything I do, I post on social media, so you can follow me at Skeptic John Guy on Twitter, and that's John without an H. Or you can follow Think Straight on Facebook, which is a page dedicated to promoting the ideas of of critical thinking and especially as they pertain to the book. And I've also been writing for thinkingispower.com and you can check out some of the things I've written there as well. Oh yeah, I'm I'm familiar with uh, Thinking is Power. In fact, I believe I have interviewed, yes, I have interviewed um, uh, the lady who runs that. Yeah, Melanie Tressett King. That's she, it, thank you. She yeah. says hi, by the way. Oh, thank you so much, that's great. Yeah, she I was told her I was- a delight to interview, so much fun, so interesting. Yeah, she said, uh, I told her I was going to, I'm actually writing, I'm co-authoring a chapter with her uh, in a textbook that's investigating pseudoscience and clinical psychology. And uh, we've, we're, we're almost to our deadline on that. And I was telling her that I was, um, I was interviewing with you tonight and she said, oh, tell him I said hello. <laughs> oh, that's great. I noticed she's one of your sources as well in your book. She's, she's, mm -hmm. uh, she's in the bibliography there. Look, this has been an absolute pleasure, John. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And I look forward to following you on social media. And I look forward to sharing this podcast with my audience. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And uh, I appreciate you having me. This was a great conversation.